0: This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And let's say it's a fine February night. You're thinking you want to make good on that New Year's resolution to be a better friend. Spend less time on social media. More time making connections. IRL. You're going to talk more with your friends. You're going to call them more. So you pop in your earbuds. Scroll through those contacts. You hit call. And the conversation is going well. Then... All of a sudden, outage. New this morning, T-Mobile
1: users across the U.S. experienced service outages overnight. The cellular tracking website downdetector.com tracked more than 80,000 outages. Users say their service changed to SOS mode, meaning they were not directly connected to a network but could still make emergency calls.
0: That was from February of this year, when T-Mobile suffered a nationwide cell phone outage, cutting off service to more than 80,000 customers. Quote, our teams are rapidly addressing a third party fiber interruption issue that has intermittently impacted some voice messaging and data services in several areas. End quote. That was from T-Mobile's President of technology Neville Ray, who tweeted after the incident. He added, The situation is improving and we hope to have a full resolution very soon. We apologize for any disruption caused. As to what caused the disruption, no specific cause was identified. Now, we're not picking on T Mobile alone. We're saying that an SOS call needs to go out for all of the nation's cell phone networks. Because a quick perusal of local television reports over the past couple of years easily produces this. If you're having trouble making calls on your cell phone today, you are not alone. A major outage is affecting Verizon customers nationwide, mostly here on the West Coast. And this... AT&T says it's experiencing a major outage across South Florida and other parts of the state right now. DownDetector.com reports more than 16,000 people reported outages on AT&T as of five this afternoon. So far, no word on the cause or how long it could last. Now, finding these examples is unfortunately very easy. Fish in the cliched barrel. But as more Americans rely exclusively on mobile networks for almost all of their communication needs, personal, work, emergencies, can the nation's various mobile networks consistently provide the kind of reliability the country needs? What makes the U.S. different from, say, South Korea? famed for its ultra-fast and highly reliable mobile infrastructure. That's what we're going to talk about today, and we also definitely want to hear from you. So what do you think of your mobile carrier's reliability? Hop on social media, Facebook, or Twitter, and find us at On Point Radio and let us know. Well, joining us today is Harold Feld. He's the Senior Vice President for Public Knowledge, a consumer advocacy organization working at the intersection of copyright telecommunications issues, and the Internet. He was also previously on the FCC's Communication Security, Reliability, and Interoperability Council. Harold, welcome to
1: On Point. Thank you for having me.
0: So, Harold, can the United States ever have the dreamy, reliable, high-speed total coverage that, say, South Korea has?
1: Well, yes, we can. And, in fact, back when we had just a wireline network, we did. Uh, What has happened is uh, that uh, when the cell phone network started up, the FCC and Congress were essentially, well, this is a new technology, we don't want to regulate it out of existence, let it grow, and we've got the regular telephone network for reliability. But as we've replaced the regular telephone network with the wireless network, we haven't stopped and said, well, okay, the wireless network is now the primary network. We need to go back to making sure that it's reliable.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's really uh, fascinating to note that we're actually having this conversation on quite a landmark week because I believe on Monday – This Monday, it was the 50th anniversary, the 50-year mark of the first cell phone call made. So we have come a very, very long way in that time from the age of the, you know, like the hand, you had to hold it with two hands almost, right? Like the brick that was literally pressed to your ear and you had to be in the line of sight of whatever um, in order to use uh, any kind of mobile communication. So so i want to I want to note that because technology does advance rapidly. And the question is um, not just the the handset technology, but now we're talking about the infrastructure that supports it. So, Harold, you know before we get into the question of how to make it more reliable, I wonder if we could actually step back and can you give us sort of the uh, the 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 mobile network one oh one because I want to understand how the system currently works. So first of all, like the cell towers, the mobile towers, who actually owns
1: those? Right. So there's two pieces here. There's for a wireless network, there's wireless and then the underlying network. So the yeah. wireless piece, the piece from your your phone to the tower, um, this industry has evolved uh, a lot. We now have a lot of towers are owned by companies that specialize in just building and owning the towers. Uh, folks like American Tower and a number of other companies and the cell phone companies lease space on these towers. So the cell phone companies then own the receiving antennas. You think of the, you know, kind of that big giant metal thing as just like a giant antenna. It's actually made of these very sophisticated, tiny antennas um, that uh, are designed to share the capacity and, and catch the uh, the phone calls in ways that would have been unthinkable uh, uh, twenty years ago, let alone fifty years ago.
0: Okay, so that's I'm just trying to envision what you know a tower I might see driving down the road looks like. There's the actual tower itself, and then all the like little antennas,
1: and each one of those might belong to a different carrier. Right, you have you know basically. If you look, you see what look like the these kind of rectangular blocks on the towers. Each one of those is what we call uh, a phased array, and they use something called MIMO, which is a massive uh, um, uh, a technology that gives you uh, massive antenna um, efficiency um, to give you a tremendous amount of uh, uh, of capacity.
0: Okay. So, that explains the sort of uh, fixed points of the the towers in the network. And then um of course there's the radio spectrum on which the communication is happening from device to tower and then from from tower to to tower, right? So that I mean that's a whole major part of the picture here.
1: Yeah, it's primarily In in urban areas, it's primarily from your phone to the tower. Um, We use what's called wireless backhaul between towers in some situations, but really what you want is for the tower to connect to a fiber line um, and push it back into the network. But the radio spectrum is the piece that the wireless companies like to focus on because that's something where they can say if there are problems, it's not their fault. Uh, OK, as- OK, so let me pause you. Let me just pause you there, because if if that's what they like to focus on, we're going to wait
0: <laughs> and, and focus on the parts that, that they don't necessarily want us to focus on. So you mentioned something that I hadn't thought about. So you want the towers to be connected to a fiber line. OK, so in situations where that is indeed the case, uh, who owns the fiber lines?
1: And here again, we can see one of the great things about the technology it is allows you to break these things up into little pieces, uh, which increase the efficiency and make things cheaper to run. But at the same time, uh, it also makes things much more complicated and more things can go wrong. So sometimes it's one of the companies like AT&T or Verizon that owns that Fiber line. Sometimes it's an independent uh, company that owns that fiber line. And that fiber line goes back and connects to some sort of network operating center, which itself uh, may be uh, owned by a different company, uh, which routes that call um, so that it can go to the proper location uh, of a tower that uh, is closest to the phone it's trying to connect to, uh, and then that array on that tower sends the uh, call to the receiving phone. And along the way here, there are a number of different companies that are responsible for just looking up where the the right phone number, where that phone number can be found, making sure that uh, uh, the call gets routed uh, properly. Uh, and uh, trying to ensure that the, the quality of the, uh, the sound uh, remains uh, uh, consistent enough for people to be able to hear uh, each other when they do connect.
0: Okay, so um, just to, to put it at the, the level of uh, a typical mobile customer's understanding – typical being me <laughs> in this case mm-hmm. so i have my so i've got my phone i've got my carrier to whom i pay the bill okay in, in my right. case it, like let's use verizon as an example but what you're saying is that is that verizon probably owns the the specific array on any particular tower that my cell phone is communicating with the tower is owned by uh someone else Does that mean that like the the particular fiber that that array might be connected to may or may not be owned by Verizon?
1: That's right. Now, it happens that Verizon is one of the companies that owns a lot of these uh, fiber lines, at least in the areas where they traditionally offer telephone service. Uh, But uh, in areas where they didn't traditionally uh, offer telephone service, because the telephone services kind of grew to be part of the, to be a big part of this fiber network in their area of service but outside of that they also have to lease capacity from other companies
0: okay okay and then as you said going sort of further downstream here there's the the re, the big relay centers which all sorts of companies might be involved in and then there's the companies that help figure out sort of how to most efficiently use the, the spectrum space to make calls clear. So lots of different um, players here in a system which Harold, as you're saying, ideally should m- make it um, more dynamic and, and reliable, but sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where that is not the case. So when we come back we're going to talk about what are the things that can cause what seem to be frequent unreliability in America's mobile networks. We'll be back. This is On point. five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. And today we're trying to understand why... America's mobile networks seem to have a major reliability problem. And I'm joined today by Harold Feld. He's Senior Vice President for Public Knowledge. It's a consumer advocacy organization that works on copyright, telecom, and the Internet. And he used to be on the FCC's Communications, Security, Reliability, and Interoperability Council. Um, So, Harold Look, I'm just I'm about to ask you a, perhaps an impossible to answer question, and that is what causes these, you know, the unreliability that many people experience in this country. I know it's probably a lot of different things, given the complexity of the system you described to us previously. But are there a couple of um, of causes that come up more than others?
1: Yeah. And just one little correction I have to make, Egna. Um, I am still on uh, uh, the uh, the CISRIC, and so I ought to clarify that nothing I say here is in any way representative uh, of the uh, the CISRIC or uh, any position of the Cisric or uh, of the FCC, even though I don't work for the FCC. But uh, uh, just to to make that point. There are a couple Uh, of things.
0: Hang on, just so so I'm clear. So you're on the Security Reliability and Interoperability Council, but you are not an employee of the FCC. Is that what That's correct. It's
1: a a federal advisory commission.
0: Understood. Okay, and I apologize for my error, but go ahead.
1: So breaking it down, we've got a couple of places where we see problems. Um, For the kind of outages you were talking about, uh, at the beginning of the show as T-Mobile had or uh, Verizon and AT&T have had those tend to be problems in the network where the issue is that the network is very complicated something goes wrong the company doesn't even know what went wrong it could be something uh, that they control it might be something that one of their contractors control this is why these outages frequently go across multiple states but not in any way that looks rational to people it's like 38 states but different areas of different states well that's because a server didn't flip at the right time and it caused an overload that cascaded through the system and it takes hours sometimes days to find out uh, where the problem occurred as the company is trying to route around it Uh, the other issues that come up particularly in rural areas are companies just don't build out enough towers. Towers Mm. are expensive to build. uh, And in rural areas, you have to cover a much larger geographic area for many fewer customers. So uh, you will see this a lot in rural America, even places that we don't think of as rural, but where the population density is comparatively low. You have lousy reception all the time and outages uh, occurring frequently because the companies don't want to spend the money uh, to extend the network out uh, that far. Uh, And finally, you have uh, sometimes problems with uh, capacity. Um, This generally doesn't happen. Phone companies are pretty good at uh, uh, trying to handle this, but particularly in crowded urban areas, uh, it's not a question of the towers. We have enough towers generally in urban areas, but it's a question of so many people are trying to use uh, the same pieces of the uh, the spectrum, the public airwaves, at the same time uh, that it makes it difficult to share that capacity among all the users. So it gets more congested, you have to play more technical tricks uh, to make it happen, and so the quality uh, of the phone and the the call can become uh, very uh, problematic. You get dropped calls, uh, you know, you were going fine, and then suddenly things drop. Well, sometimes that's because you wandered in front of a steel beam and the signal just drops. <laughs> but sometimes it's because the company is trying to share these little antennas on the array with hundreds of thousands of phones trying to, to connect it at once, and yours got dropped out of there.
0: Yeah. You know, as much as I hate to do this, I want to be mm. fair to the carriers, right? And in fact, all the companies that um, are part of the mobile networks in the United States, because uh, the outages are a problem. Obviously, we're doing a show about it, but— but um Also, what they accomplish on a day-to-day basis is kind of amazing. I mean, just yesterday I was on a WhatsApp call with a relative in Australia. The call quality was pretty good and there was like basically no delay. I mean, I I was calling effortlessly, not even calling, right? It was an app-based call. Someone in Australia. And so, I mean, is there an argument to be made that... Part of the problem is also that the technology in our hands regarding the things that the devices can do is always going to be out in front of what the network is capable of doing. And so these carriers are constantly playing catch up, meaning we're just going to have to kind of live with a certain amount of unreliability as a sheer fact of how the technology is
1: developed. See, I, I don't think that's a good argument for voice. Um, And keep in mind that we generally treat the voice part of the call separately from uh, the Internet uh, part of the call for a number of reasons. And uh, with voice, uh, where I see the problems are Uh, The strengths are also the weaknesses, that is to say the fact that you can break this up into a lot of different pieces so that you have competition and innovation at each stage is an enormous strength, but it's also a weakness because no single person, even the company that is offering you the service, is responsible for making sure that it all works together reliably all the time. It's kind of generally everyone's responsibility to make sure their piece is running. And when something is generally everybody's responsibility, it's nobody's actual responsibility.
0: Right. But when we have one entity that's responsible for um, a lot of things, we kind of look at that askance as monopoly. I mean, the
1: telecommunications industry is a perfect example of how we have broken up monopolies in the past. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's the challenge. And that's where... Uh, We need to have smart strategies that look at the strengths that we have, you know, the network redundancy, the new information, because back in the old Ma Bell days, you know, if you had a break in your phone line. That was just it. There was nothing uh, you could do about it here. Um, if, you know, let's say after a natural disaster and you have one carrier that that manages to be up and running uh, while the other carriers suffered enough damage that they're out, you can have what we call roaming agreements where everybody else can share capacity on the working carrier so you don't have to rely on just one network in this kind of situation you can rely on all the networks in this kind of situation to to balance each other out and that's how we have new thinking new ways to take advantage of the new technologies to achieve that same result of reliability but in fairness to the mobile phone industry there is something of a trade-off we can certainly do better but I will say we're probably never going to go back to that 99.999% reliable uh, that we expected out of the old uh, uh, monopoly telephone system. Okay. So this is
0: a really good point because, uh, Harold, I will admit that I am old enough to remember when I did not have a mobile phone and just had my (laughs) landline. But it was the one utility, essentially, that we could rely on to work almost no matter what happened uh, around us, uh, power failures, uh, natural disasters, etc. That era is gone, is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, and there are a number of reasons why. I mean, for one thing, the old uh, network was, the the old telephone network was self-powered. It was a copper line, it worked with an independent, the phone company provided independent power for it, so even if the power went out in your home, your landline still worked. Today. Most landlines, unless you have one of the the older copper lines um, modern uh, even the modern landlines are not capable of being self-powered. that's just the nature of the technology. but again, we can do better the one of the things we have talked about in the wireless industry is should you mandate backup power uh, you know so that when the power goes out um, you actually have a certain amount of backup power generators that are there at the tower not something you bring in uh, after the back out should there be uh you know uh, mandatory uh backup power in the underlying wireline network the, those fiber lines that take the calls from the uh, uh the tower so you know again we're never going to go back to when it was a much simpler network that you know you could to pound it and do lots of things, and and it would still operate. Um, and it costs ten bucks every five minutes for a long distance call. That's how we paid <laughs> for that reliability. Uh, so, because again, there's a cost trade-off. I mean, one of the things is you know while we look at our our, I know I look at my phone bill every month and I go, what happened there? How is that so high? Um, but I'm getting a lot more services out of it and uh, and a, a lot more hidden fees but that's a different problem but you know the the fact is that under the old phone system we had very high long distance charges as the way of subsidizing uh, a number of things including that reliability so again yeah. it's trade offs and we we have to be smart about how we do it
0: you know um sorry the 10 bucks a minute um, mention that you made Harold I'm sorry I, I, I a little I smiled there because it just all of a sudden like popped up into my head memories from when I was a kid obviously my uh, my uh, family hails from India to begin with and we would almost never call almost never call my relatives in India because of that cost and when we did we'd like have to yet like yell into the phone and you could hear the echo and the static of it like bouncing off yep. a satellite somewhere and then it takes a while like you could like watch it on your clock when you when the relative actually heard the message and back and forth but i'm glad that we're not in those days anymore but um but i do wonder what you think harold about you mentioned the size of the united states the cost of putting um mobile network infrastructure in rural areas etc as as the company saying being prohibitive but i wonder um like honestly how would you compare what the average American has accessible to them regarding mobile networks in this country to to other nations. I mean, are we are we worse off or are we actually better off and just like to complain about it?
1: I, You know, it depends on on what dimension we're talking about and, and also where you are. Look, uh, you know, the fact is that if you look at, um, you know, international comparisons with other industrialized uh, um, nations, Uh, we're pretty expensive for the service that we get. Um, Our reliability, you know, is good, but not super great. Now, sometimes those comparisons aren't, you know, fair. South Korea is a much smaller, more compact, uh, uh, you know, uh, country, but... It also depends a lot on the policies you adopt. Europe adopted um, a number of policies that increased competition there enormously. So their mobile rates are just much, much lower than ours um, without suffering from, uh, you know, uh, reliability uh, problems. Uh, But. Uh, uh, you know, well, it is certainly the case that uh, the United States remains a leader in the um, functions that we put into the the phone, the capacities uh, that we uh, uh, that we put into it, uh, and uh, uh, we are. Generally, the first uh, country to adopt a uh, a new generational uh, technology, we're the first, you know, company that was actively uh, deploying, you know, switching from 3G to 4G and then 4G to 5G. Um, and, you know, that has been our set of policy choices. Mm.
0: Okay. So it's finally time to talk about the spectrum, the thing that the mobile ne- companies want us to look at. um, Which is part of the policy
1: choices. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So go ahead. Tell us, like, what do we need to understand about the role that the area of the spectrum that companies have access to and what that how that play the role that plays in reliability?
1: Okay, I'm going to start by saying, you know, I I do a little training on this every year for our incoming uh, interns, and I'm going to say the same thing I say there. One, this is a gross oversimplification. Um, Okay. So the other is don't worry about what these numbers mean. A lot of times they're, you know, just sort of arbitrary and you just have to know that, you know, certain frequency bands are better for certain things. And don't worry about, uh, uh, you know, what's the difference between one gigahertz and three gigahertz and five gigahertz and just just accept. They're going to be a little different from each other for, for different reasons, and, and, you know, it would take an hour to get into the physics. <laughs> uh, so what we look at is because what cell phone companies do is they, they want exclusive rights to use a particular block of spectrum in a particular geographic area. That's called a, a spectrum license and you get it from the Federal Communications Commission. Uh, Wi-Fi is an example of where everybody gets to use the same block of spectrum and it does what we call spectrum reuse and you just accept what interference happens. Uh, We use exclusive licensing in order to try to avoid some of the interference issues. Uh, The consequence of that is, number one, it limits the number of of providers you can have um, in a geographic area. Uh, because in order to have decent capacity, you can only, you know, have a couple of these licenses on the same set of frequencies, um, and uh, uh, the other thing uh, it does is uh, um, mean that the customers for that. Company are only using the the piece of the spectrum uh, that is available uh, to that company through its license. Otherwise, you have to do what's called roaming. You may see that, you know, on your phone you've entered mm-hmm. into roaming. Those are expensive agreements between uh, cell phone companies of when I don't have the capacity, um, I you know, I rent it from you, essentially, and only where you have spare capacity because your customers come first. So – yeah. Whenever we add new functions and new users, you need more of that wireless capacity. And not only that, it has to be the right kind of capacity. Um, For a long time, what you wanted was what was called low-band spectrum, which was between 500 uh, megahertz and uh, 1 gigahertz. And... There wasn't a lot of that. It was shared by a lot of other uh, services like television. You may remember when we switched from traditional analog television to digital television. Part of the Uh reason we did that was to squish the broadcasters down into a smaller amount of spectrum and take back spectrum that they used to use and auction it off to the phone companies so that we could go to 4G. Uh, Uh. The – As the technology's changed, we've started to move up the the scale, and now we're talking about spectrum that's largely held by the federal government.
0: Oh, okay, right, and specifically the Defense Department,
1: right? Defense Department has a lot.
0: (laughs) Yeah, okay, so when we come back, we're going to talk more about sort of the... The pressures on the spectrum um, and the role that the government can play Um, and we'll also take a look at what the companies say they offer versus what reality is on the ground so that'll all be in just a minute this is on point This is On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about why America's mobile networks seem to have a lot of reliability issues and how to make them meet the standards that we all probably have for a mobile 21st century. And um, we're getting some comments here online. John Baker says... I'd say not being a customer of T-Mobile or AT&T would be a good start, LOL. Ha ha, John. But we're also talking about Verizon and all the other companies having essentially the same basket of problems. But your point taken. I like that on point listeners might have a sense of humor here. Now, Uh, As Harold Fell just described to us, we were talking, we're trying to understand sort of the role that this spectrum plays in terms of uh, producing a network or helping create a network that can meet the needs and the demands of uh, a mobile nation here. So we talked about the government um, being able to apportion out parts of the spectrum, so really... We're focusing on the Department of Defense because they are a major holder of the radio spectrum. So back in 2014, there was a conversation between federal officials and telecommunications executives. And in that conversation, General Robert Wheeler explained that the spectrum in the eyes of the Pentagon is the thread that ties the different services of America's defense together from space to planet Earth. And he gave an example of what that looks like for him.
1: In a combat or non-combat situation, I have a connection to the satellites continuously. I have data coming into that. I actually have a laptop that sits between me that has Microsoft Office on it. And so I get emails and things of that particular nature on there at the same time. I've got Link 16 going up there showing all the other aircraft and all the other potential threats that are out there on my particular screen. At the same time, I'm getting voice. All of that's occurring at the same time. So I'm receiving data on two separate screens, I'm also receiving voice multiple in most cases some of it's coming from satellites coming from terrestrial based and then at the same time i'm also starting to get a little pieces and parts of non uh, voice typing beeps and squeaks and things that come through that i understand that tell me where the threats are
0: so that's general robert wheeler back in 2014 saying the pentagon needs all that part of the spectrum well telecommunications companies would say We need it, too, because of the 330 million Americans that have some certain expectations for what they can be able to do with their mobile devices. So here's Meredith Atwell Baker, CEO of CTIA. It's an industry trade group that represents the wireless industry, AT&T, T-Mobile, Verizon, etc. And last August, at a Senate hearing, Baker argued that especially as 5G grows, it'll be essential that the mobile industry receives more space on the spectrum. The fastest growing home broadband company is a wireless provider, and 5G Home will be key in closing the digital divide. We also know that the job is not complete. 5G goes further and faster every day. We need to keep building in New Mexico, South Dakota, and across the nation. This is about opportunity and equity. To do all of this, we need your help, and we need more spectrum. Harold, everybody wants and needs more spectrum. Do they yes. deserve it?
1: Well, I mean, it's sort of funny because we're in the middle of uh, trying to formulate a new national spectrum strategy. The NTIA, uh, which is the executive branch uh, agency that manages federal use of spectrum, had a listening session here uh, in Washington, D.C. last week. And it was basically 30 different companies getting up there and saying, hi, this is why I'm important. Please give me more spectrum. Thank you. Um, So, yeah, everybody wants it. And everybody's right in the sense that we all rely on it. We are getting more and more innovative uses out of it. Um, the problem is it's not something that you can go manufacture more of or, you know, dig out of a mine or anything. So, uh but there are ways to think around this kind of zero sum game. Your loss is my gain kind of thing. Um, one of the things, you know, and I think my boss, Chris Lewis testified at that same August hearing that. Uh, um, uh, Meredith Baker uh, testified at, and we, you know, one of the things that we talk about is different ways of sharing the spectrum, Mm -hmm. Um, different ways to make federal users more efficient. There's a long lead time in it, but part of this is if Congress were willing to invest and spend more money to upgrade uh, federal equipment, uh, you could make federal users more efficient. They could uh, do more uh, with With less spectrum. So you'd have more spectrum be available for other commercial uses. Uh, But uh, it's hard. Nobody is thinking about cooperating. Um, You know, everybody's thinking about, you know, I need some uh, and uh, you're the guys who have it, so give it to me. This seems to be a recurrent theme when we
0: talk about why certain um, systems in the United States have uh, difficulty really making major strides forward, sort of a lack of... uh of a cohesive vision, um, a lack of standards and a lack of cooperation. Um, I'm going to come back to that in a few minutes, Harold. But also when, when those companies, right, when the telecom companies get up there and they stand up and say, hello, I need more spectrum, I think a fair response from lawmakers and especially, you know, citizens and customers is, okay, that's great. But are you at this moment, actually providing the level of service that you say you are? So let's take a close look at that, because, um, you know, as you know, Harold, back in 2018, the FCC looked at ways to expand mobile coverage uh, across the country and particularly in rural areas. That comes up over and over again. And to measure where the needs actually were, the FCC first asked Verizon and AT&T and the like to submit maps to the FCC of where the companies claimed people had coverage.
2: Well, let me let me just say this. You show that map that shows coverage to anyone on the street in Vermont and they'll giggle like, I mean, you've got to be kidding me. But no one seriously believes that that map actually purports to where there's actual service.
0: So this is Corey Chase. He's the telecommunications infrastructure specialist for the Vermont Department of Public Service. So the FCC also made another challenge when they asked for those maps. The regulator asked states to provide data that checked the accuracy of those coverage maps. And Corey said, game on.
2: So I got six phones, one for each of the companies that offer service in the state. We have searched and found a, a smartphone application that uh, wasn't user-friendly but would produce the test results that met the requirements that the FCC set forth um, and started driving. And over about two months, we drove all of the, major, the significant roads in the state that ended up being about 6,000 miles of driving.
0: That's 6,000 miles of driving in Vermont. And he did it over six weeks. And after all of that, Corey says that the giggling Vermonters he had mentioned before, the ones who say, you've got to be kidding me. Well, they were right, because he found that the companies did not meet the speeds they had reported on those maps in about two-thirds of his tests. But then something else happened.
2: The maps produced by the, by the companies And the challenges that we submitted uh, were all kind of overwhelming. And the FCC had intended to make available a large uh, um, grant program. They basically decided to scrap the program and come up with a new plan.
0: Now, that grant program was a $4.5 billion fund to help expand LTE service in rural areas. And as Corey said, the FCC scrapped that program. And he thinks it's because... The FCC received significant challenges from many groups who said those carrier maps just weren't accurate and they needed better data. So in 2022, the FCC again asked companies and the states to provide new coverage data. But again, test drives in Vermont showed...
2: 8% of the buildings in the state that are in areas that we tested, voice calls did not go through for AT&T. And that represents... um, about 25,000 buildings. So there are 25,000 buildings that we know of uh, that can't access AT&T's mobile wireless service. And importantly, they can't call 911 if they or their relatives or friends were over at their house, you know, that's it's a public safety problem.
0: So in this year's budget, Vermont Governor Phil Scott included a $10 million request to deploy new state-funded towers in underserved areas because of the length of time it's taken to get support from the federal level.
2: It is a frustrating thing for for those of us who participate in the process. Um, And and we all want to avoid waste where possible with taxpayer money. Um, But I think that our sense is that they veered so far the other direction this time is to make it essentially impossible to participate. Um, As more and more people become more and more reliant on it as a part of our daily lives, When most of us live in areas that are urban and have access to service and you just think that it's always going to be there, you don't realize that there are huge swaths of this country that don't have access to that service. And yet we've all come to rely on it and we expect it to be there. And the fact that it's not is a problem.
0: So that's Corey Chase. He's the telecommunications infrastructure specialist for the department. Uh, excuse me, the Vermont Department of Public Service. Okay, Harold. So this gets us to talking about you know, what can we do to improve reliability, and there are many, many solutions here. There's not one magic bullet, but what about starting with? Standards, Like, are there federal standards that companies, telecom companies have to meet that say that say at the very least, if you say you have a certain level of coverage in a certain spot in the country, you actually have to have it?
1: You know, I'm I'm glad we got to a place where I can put on my my consumer advocate hat and have a good rant, because this is something (laughs) we we argued about a lot. And this has been a hobby horse of mine for many years is no, we don't have standards at this point. Uh, we've states have not regulated these services, and when they've tried, the uh, uh, the FCC uh, has uh, often preempted them uh, from uh, trying to uh, to regulate these services. Uh, the FCC generally does not have quality of service uh, standards for uh, mobile, um, and to the extent that they have things like. Uh, what we call performance um, metrics or build-out requirements, where you're supposed to cover, um, you know, x amount of the uh, the population or x amount of the geography, uh, they don't check. Um, and you know, the standard is quote substantial service, which just means if you can sometimes get a signal, you know, there then you're meeting your obligation. And to make things worse, uh, to the extent that the FCC collects things like outage data. Um, which they they do, they keep that confidential. We and uh, we public knowledge and consumer reports have argued for years that at a minimum, the FCC ought to publish the reliability data so that consumers can vote with their feet. And you see which network is more reliable. And, you know, that's how competition is supposed to work. The FCC what's preventing
0: them. Yeah. What's preventing them from doing that?
1: I'm hearing well, the words know. lobbying bounce around in my head, but I don't want oh, to. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, the companies say, Well, you know, that's trade secret stuff. And, you know, if you want us to report honestly, then you shouldn't Uh, uh, you know, you shouldn't publish it, to which, you know, our response is, first of all, an outage isn't a trade secret. You know, everybody in the area knows that their services and, you know, what you're doing is just making it harder for people to actually look at all of the information. You know, we've got, as you you said at the beginning of the show, private websites that will keep track of this. But, uh, you know, we don't have anything official out of the FCC. Uh, And, uh, uh, you know, well, as for we won't report honestly, you know, if it's not confidential, like it's a federal crime to lie about this stuff to the agency. You know, you're obligated to report honestly. So, you know, we have pushed very hard on this, but it's something uh, that the companies have pushed very hard uh, back on and that, uh, uh, you know, the, the commission just has not uh, uh, been willing to do yet.
0: I can only laugh, Harold. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't laugh because it's not funny, but it's ridiculous. I mean, it is this-
1: ridiculous. <clears throat> it just, uh, excuse me. That's my bile rising in my consumer <laughs> throat there because it's insane you know and there's no good reason to not at least publish the reliability data so I could look at it on a yearly basis and say well I I noticed that you know t-mobile was more reliable than T or Verizon was more reliable than ATT well most everybody's more reliable but anyway um you know the 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 you know and then I'll switch if I care about the reliability you know but I mean,
0: that should be – like for for every free marketeer out there, this should be an easy win. You know, like that's how the markets are supposed to work. With good information, people vote with their feet, and ideally that makes a system – well, they vote with their wallets, I should say, and that makes the system better. But I don't know. I'm hearing the words regulatory capture also bounce around, around in my in head.
1: Your... Yeah, you know, I mean, look, I, I have a lot of respect for folks at the FCC. I uh, think uh, – Um, You know, a lot of times they're trying to do uh, the right thing. But, you know, they uh, the problem is if they uh, if they do their job too well and regulate too hard, um, you know, Congress calls them in and has these hearings where they shout at them a lot. There was a famous moment when Tom Wheeler, who was the chair of the FCC uh, in the second uh, part of the Obama administration, was at an appropriations uh, hearing. And this is when um, the Republicans were controlling uh, both chambers. I can't remember if this was in the Senate or the House. But the the chair of the committee said, for years, we've been cutting your budget because we want you to do less with less. Um, So. You know, if you're the agency, you're you're kind of reluctant to do stuff that the entire industry hates.
0: Okay, we, we literally have 30 seconds and I'm so sorry for for this Harold, but what's the other one thing that you would want to change to help, you know, uh, get the networks to be more reliable?
1: Hold the companies responsible. Tell them it is their ultimate responsibility to make sure that the networks are uh, running properly, have real penalties uh, for when they uh, fail to do that, because they're contracting with these guys. They can put these clauses in contracts, you know, that you're going to have to indemnify us if the FCC uh, uh, finds us and it's your fault. Uh, and, you know, No more of this finger pointing and shrugging about how the network's so complicated. You're selling the service to the customer. You're in charge. You're responsible. Make sure it works. And if it breaks, fix it fast.
0: Well, Harold Feld, he's senior vice president for public knowledge, a consumer advocacy organization, and he's on the FCC's Security Reliability and Interoperability Council. Harold, thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me. This is On Point.